Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tej Talks podcast. Welcome, welcome. Today, we are talking about property. But before I get to that stuff, let me just stop you right there. Don't slam on the brakes if you're driving uh, or don't use your phone either if you're driving. Have you purchased my books? I've got two books. One of them has 43 different property investors in talking about their stories, their experience, their opinions. Of course, there's conflicting ideas in the book. Of course, there are. 43 different investors answering seven to kind of 12 questions each, a bit like Tim Ferriss's Tools of Titans or Tribe of Mentors, but for property. Go get it. That is called Behind the Bricks and it's on Amazon. My first book, The Tesh Talk Guide to Property Investing. I mean, it does what it says on the tin, 225 star reviews. You know, that says something about the book. Both 15 quid. Go on Amazon, type in Tesh Talk's property and get them. If you're a beginner, if you're looking to do BR, if you want to understand different strategies, get these books. On another note, uh, me and James have started and are running The Property Event. So go to thepropertyevent.co.uk. We run these networking events every single month, the second Thursday of every month in Clerkenwell in London, which is very close to Farringdon. There's also a Nando's there if you want a pre-networking meal. Although sometimes we do give food. No, it's not your little white bread shitty cheap mayonnaise egg crest sandwiches listen we do like punjabi wedding food yeah samosa pakore like we do it properly yeah anyways the networking's really good so come along to that because like it's a lot of fun for us and we know people love it and we've been doing some polls and there's over there has been over five million pounds if people are telling the truth in the room on the first two events so your jv partner you know your potential investor is at our events that's a fact that's a fact. No money back guarantee. Anywho, on today's podcast, I have Rosie here from Arch Investments. Now, her and her partner, Alan, have built a multi-million pound property portfolio over the last three years. Rosie's quit her job and become a full-time property investor in January 2021. They started out doing buy-to-lets, which is great. Love, love buy-to-lets in the Northwest. They were not going to do anything different until they had a 12 bed. Yeah, you read it. So from buy to let to a 12 bed HMO, or as you say in the North, HMO. So they then started to diversify their portfolio. They're looking at mixed use buildings in Kent. You know, they've done quite a few creative property investing strategies. And if you're on Instagram, you need to go and follow them at Arch Investments. Hopefully you recognize them, but I really enjoyed this podcast and I think you will too. So enjoy and when you're done go on amazon get my books and i'll see you at the networking event rosie welcome to the Tedge talks podcast thank you so much for having me i've been i've been following you and alan on instagram as arch investments for i think maybe for a bit now and at least before i was following you your post would come up in my kind of recommended um thing on instagram i always i always liked them because they were very like personal like it felt like you know, I was following Rosie and Alan, not, you know, Arch Investments necessarily and not a faceless company. It really felt like these two, you know, with your with your puppy and your life, your holidays, your even your own home, which, 
you know, I think you recently sold or are selling. Like, I kind of felt like I knew both of you, which for me is like a really, really important part of social media and branding, which we are going to talk about. But before we get into that, let's kind of give the people some context and further understanding of you if they're not following you on Instagram, which they will be after this uh, podcast. Um, Who are you both? Uh, And I suppose, what were you doing before you both got into property? Great. What an introduction there. So um, I, uh, my background, um, I came out of uni, I studied psychology, um, found myself in a fundraising and marketing role for my local hospice, um, which in hindsight gave me a huge amount of um, transferable skills to to property. Um, I guess you can take transferable skills from any path you take. Um, From there, I went on to work at for a on a graduate scheme for TK Maxx. Um, in I love TK Maxx. Good bargains there. <laughs> Great bargains there. I buy a lot of um, our HMO stuff um, from TK Maxx. Really good bargains. So that was, um, I was there for a couple of years. That was up in Watford, um, the other side of London to Kent. Um, Alan and I got engaged while I was up there. Um, and so we decided to move in together in Kent. Kept going for a little while, commuting um, from Kent to Watford, which was not fun. I hadn't realised how awful it was going to be. Um, so I quickly decided to um, move move my job back back to Kent. Um, and I worked for another local charity because I enjoyed working for a charity um, in HR, um, which was had no experience in HR at all. I think the, the the lady who was recruiting me just liked me and decided, oh, let's give this a go. So um, I was there for four years. And what was great about that role was um, it gave me the headspace to do property alongside it. Uh, it. It was very much a nine to five, not not no longer than that. It was just nine to five. So I could go home and um, start working on property in the evenings, which was lovely. Mm. And what was your, like, what kind of got you into property? Because, you know, you graduated, you had these jobs, you were kind of, you had a career, you both had, you know, a career of sorts. What then made you think, hmm, let's look at something totally different. And let's look at something that I suppose becomes its own business and then becomes, I suppose, everything you're kind of, you're focusing on. Like, what triggered that? So we... When we bought our first home, we actually considered buying instead of one, two up, two down house. We thought about buying uh, two flats, one for us to live in, one to rent out. That was sort of what our budget allowed. Um, We decided not to go down that route, but we were interested in property. My um, parents have a couple of student properties in Canterbury where we live, um, and I've seen them do up I grew up in a in a farmhouse, beautiful farmhouse, but they bought it when it was derelict, no running water 20, 25, 30 years ago. Um, so I, I've seen what they've done with property and how you can um, create wealth from property. So always interesting. Um, and it was a we thought at some point we'd like to buy another property. So when we decided to have a family, whenever that may be, we we'd be able to um, have a bit of income if I decided not, not to go back to work or to go back to work part-time yeah so good old Facebook came up with a, a sponsored ad of <laughs> I don't know some sort of training seminar so we went along um, as a lot of people do got sold this dream of passive passive income replacing your your salary um, and the rest is history really <laughs> and 
So did you sign up and go on like the full paid course? We did. Yes. Invested a huge amount of money. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, that's an interesting topic actually we can speak about because property education is a minefield and you know, there's a lot of, oh, well, the trainer shouldn't be selling a dream. And then there's like, well, actually society, you shouldn't be so dumb and believe in this. Yeah. And I say that kind of bluntly. And then it's, and there's a lot of like, well, who do you trust? Because, you know, this person's got this many properties, they've done that. And, you know, oh, like there's just so much like information. There's so much overload in property education. Yeah. And I suppose it's easy for us to look at now with experience and say, well, we can see who's good and who's bad. And like, we can kind of discern between them when you were starting out, you know, did like, you know, was it quite sort of straightforward? You went to this one company, you did the training and that was it. Or did you feel a bit of overload and confusion with who to go with and how to get educated? So uh, not like us at all, but we were quite impulsive with it. We went to this seminar, we signed up for the the three day course, did the three day course and they upsold us to uh, another few training courses. Um, so we're we're not impulsive people at all um, and we're not spenders um but we we believed them um, rightly or wrongly uh, that we could really do this and i think what well, i mean you probably know better than me Ted, um the percentage of people who go on these training courses and do nothing um is something like 70% or something something crazy um but having spent the money we spent we weren't going to be one of those 30%. Um, so I think if nothing else, it forced us to do it because because we're not spenders, we don't uh, impulse buy or do anything like that. It, it forced us to to actually make it work. And did you like actually find the sort of content and the courses useful looking back? Yeah, it gave us a really good um, basic knowledge. I think your best way to learn about properties to just go out and buy one um which which was baptism of fire in itself um but yeah it gave us it's the create it's the creative um methods around property investing the using investor finance um that we we would never have felt comfortable doing we wouldn't even know have known that was a thing um that it opened our eyes to, to that that side of things which enabled us to progress quicker Mm. And you know, it's an interesting point that you said because you spent the money, you know, you weren't going to be. And I don't know what the percentage is, but I have a feeling it starts with a nine. Um, you know, you don't want to be one of those percentages who go on it and don't do anything. So, and I hear that a lot. It's like, and, and sometimes look, if it takes someone spending whatever it is, a couple of grand or a couple hundred quid on something, and even if they didn't necessarily take value from it, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but if you do what you did there, which was take action from it and it then pushes you and then you become, and like you have, you built a multi-million pound portfolio, you know, I suppose it's a small price to pay. And if that's what it takes for someone, that's kind of what it takes, you know, for people listening, but obviously, you know, try and pick a good one now, um, especially because I suppose maybe the market's changed from when you first did it, but I think there's a lot more people doing it and there's a lot more ways to investigate and tell um, who's doing what? So you went on this course, and you mentioned some of the creative financing and some and just financing in general. After yeah. you went on this, like, and a lot of people struggle with this when they start out. How did you decide what strategy to start with and why? 
So for us, we had never even considered investing uh, far away from where we live. Um, we live in Kent. Our investment area for the last four years has been the Wirral, um, which is northwest, just over the water from Liverpool. Um, so at the time, we were just looking at what what can we get up north? Didn't really have an area or a strategy. Um, and we looked at Birmingham. Didn't, numbers didn't stack very competitive, looked at Liverpool. Again, we weren't so keen um, on the houses. Again, very competitive. So we looked a bit further out at the Wirral. Um, and numbers worked on buy-to-lets. Um, we did look at HMOs and we we still do look at HMOs. Um, the numbers for sort of four, five, six bed HMOs never really excited us. Um, whereas buy-to-lets, we could, I mean, one of our best performing buy-to-lets on the Wirral um, gives us £450 a month cash flow. So an HMO was sort of, I don't know, £700, £800. It didn't seem worth the extra hassle, um, the extra refurb you have to put into it. So really for us, it was buy-to-let or HMO to start with. Um, and it seemed sensible. All these training courses tell you foundation of buy-to-lets before you do anything else. And that is the safe way to go. Mm. And, you know, of course, with buy-to-lets, and, and I suppose maybe people who don't know, you know, each buy-to-let generates you anywhere from 250 to 350. Is that yeah. in your experience, Rosie? So you need a fair few of them to kind of well, do anything, I suppose, to quit your job, to pay your bills, yeah. to do something like that. When you, because I I suppose I, I, I didn't realise how slow it was when I first, first started out. I realised pretty quickly. But when you started out, did you think, you know what? Pytolets, little income. We need to buy quite a few of them. This is going to take a bit of time. Did you know that and expect it? I mean, sort of. But as I said, our, our first buy-to-let gave us four hundred and fifty pounds a month profit. Mm. So six nine five for a little buy-to-let was the is the rental, which has gone up now. Um, and even our smaller ones, sort of three fifty. So w- when people talked about I mean, you said 250 to 350. Some people say 150. And I'm like, why would you get out of bed for 150? Mm. Um, but but once you start getting towards that 400 mark, I was not earning an awful lot working for a charity. 400 pounds a month extra is good money, um, was good money to me. So I thought that was very much worth it. Um, but I know some people who are earning the big bucks in London, it, it's not going to be a huge amount of money to them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, buying that first property, uh, you know, was it daunting? Was it scary? Were you kind of analysing the deal a hundred times over before you purchased it? Like talk me through kind of how it was pre-purchased with your first ever, you know, investment property. So our first property, we, um, it was a, on, on with purple bricks. So you get to tend to get to know the vendor um, through purple bricks. There's often, um, they often do the viewings. So we'd seen this property um, probably six months previous and we put an offer on. I think it was on the market for 110 or something. And we'd offered 80, not thinking in a million years it was going to go through. Um, It wasn't worth 110 by any stretch. And the market was very different to what it was today. Even I mean, this was three and a half years ago or so. So the difference now to back then is 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 huge. Um, So we. So this this guy six six months later six or eight months later um, came came to us and said um, 
my mother who was living in this property um has found a home that she wants to live in she's elderly she can't cope with the house anymore you're my lifeline um will you still offer 80 and absolutely and that is the power of following up I followed up on that deal every every couple of months and just checked in to see has he sold it is he is he interested in selling it at, at the price that I wanted it for um so so that that was really how we how we got that first one meeting the vendor he liked us he still messages me <laughs> on new year um every year to say happy new year hope you have a good one and um, so it's building that building those relationships constantly as you know it property is a people business absolutely and there's a lot of people listening who would say bloody hell you offered 80 on 110 like it's never going to get accepted like you thought like i have thought and like we've all kind of thought but you know, if everyone listening who's put in 10 offers and they've got none accepted, well, you know, Rosie, say that again. How long did it, how many months did it take to go from offer to actually being accepted? I think it was six, six, seven months. So for everyone listening, property is slow. Um, yeah. And that just shows you that like Rosie was saying, this is about relationships. This is about following up because let's say Rosie didn't follow up, put an offer in and said, oh, it's been rejected, bloody hell. I came along and offered whatever, 78 for argument's sake. I was following up every month. Who is that vendor going to give the deal to really? Like if, if they, if they like us both equally, yeah, you know, it's going to be the person who follows up. So it's so, so important to do that. And, you know, when it, you know, this house, was it like in a really bad condition or was it kind of okay? So we were a little naive and <laughs> we didn't think it was so bad. It was very, very dated, um, but we were planning on getting a mortgage on it. And we hadn't realised that some mortgage lenders, if not all mortgage lenders, are not happy to lend on a buy-to-let basis if it doesn't have gas central heating. And it didn't have gas central heating. That was our first big lesson. So um, the surveyor went out and zero valued our first property purchase, which was a, a bit painful. <laughs> Good old surveyors, they always get it right, don't they? That's it. (laughs) And so, you know, I suppose that is quite a a big learning curve. Um, Yeah. What did you do when that happened? So uh, we had always intended to purchase the first one using our own funds. Um, uh, We we wanted to prove the system. We'd done this training. We told everyone what we were doing um, before starting to raise investor finance. We'd always planned to do the first one ourselves. Of course, we couldn't at the time. Seven, this one was seventy six thousand. We ended up paying not the eighty because of, we managed to negotiate down um, to seventy six because of um, not being able to get a mortgage on it. So we um, we put the feelers out. We'd had we told a few people about what we were doing, um, and we managed to raise uh, the whole amount cash. So we did manage to go ahead with that one. So you raised the whole amount. From investors or family friends, but investors, uh, family friends, investors. Yeah, one was actually <laughs> I at the time. There's lots of things that you you don't learn in um, property training. At the time, I hadn't realised that you weren't allowed to post on Facebook groups asking people for money. Um, <laughs> as naive as that was, um, and so I put my wonderful deal online and asked if anyone wanted to invest in it. Um, of course, the post was taken down. But just before it was, um, I've managed to get a couple of email addresses. And one of one of those email ad- email addresses is a lady who, who is still one of our best investors today. So sometimes it pays to <laughs> not follow the rules. <laughs> I mean, that is that is a pro tip there, because yeah. 
just before it was taken. I mean, I love that. Just before it's taken down, you've got your best investor to date. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. Rules, you know, sometimes <laughs> they're there to be bent and broken a little bit. Um, I mean, firstly, that's pretty awesome to have you know to raise investor finance on your first ever deal. Yeah. Were you worried about this because it's other people's money and it was still new to you? Uh, yes, definitely, because the. I always say your big one of your biggest risks as an investor, especially on buy to let deals, is is that end value. Um, you can do all the research in the world that you like, um, but the surveyor going out on valuation day that is a risk um, because you just don't know what what they're gonna they're gonna give you. So that was my biggest worry: getting the end value that we wanted, and we didn't quite get the value that we wanted. But and and at the time it felt like a big deal. Um, but looking back on it, I mean five five grand in property terms it is not a huge amount of money and that's how much you left in oh no 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 more than that on this one Ted. <laughs> um, gone i think it was about i think we left about seventeen thousand. it was still a healthy 25 percent return on investment in today's market that's fantastic but at the time that felt like quite a blow Mm. I mean, yeah, I think look, at the end of the day, the question is, where else are you getting 25% as secure as property? You know, exactly. e- even now with crypto, yeah, you can get triple that in a few days, but the security and the capital appreciation, totally different things. But, yeah, you know, it's still a healthy return. I suppose people shouldn't get too caught up on money left in. It's important. Of course exactly. it is. However, if we go back to your point about surveyors, yes. <sighs> surveyors i mean where do i start I'll get a migraine <laughs> if i even start um for people who are new like like rose was saying the end value is like super super important right now one of the biggest reasons it's important is because if your investors loaned you 100 grand and you're paying them back say 104 grand including interest when you get an end value that decides how much money that you've left in the deal and of course if you've left in say 20k well Who's giving your investor that 20K that you've got of theirs in the deal if you haven't actually funded the whole thing? So, you know, especially on Bytelets and BRR, I think a lot of people really underestimate. And like you said, Rosie, there's ways of doing it. You know, you can do square meterage analysis. You can go detailed. You can get an idea. However, whatever that surveyor thinks, whatever the lenders whispered to them to, you know, to sort of the way they're valuing it has a huge impact because anyone starting out, ask yourself this, if you're borrowing investor funds and you happen to leave in seven grand more and your investor payback is due in four months, where's the seven grand coming from? Because if I'm your investor, I'm asking for that money back. I'm needing it back. So, you know, Rosie, do you find that as well? Like people underestimate the kind of risk of like end values in like buy to lets? Absolutely. And we had an example recently, uh, late last year, um, we had a flat that we owned three flats in the block. That's all of them. Um, We knew the end value because we'd had plenty of others revalued. Um, We we thought it was worth about 75,000. We were happy with 70,000. One valuer came out and valued it at 50. 55,000 um which i mean i say 5 grand here and there but 15 grand on a 70,000 pound property is a lot of money um to be leaving in so we weren't happy with that we changed mortgage lender 
uh, oh, sorry, I've completely messed that story up. The first, the first um, valuer that came out valued it at, at 70, which oh. we were happy with. Valued it at, ha- which we were happy with. We then, they declined the mortgage because they didn't like that I'd given up my job. Another oh. story. But, so we went to another lender. The, the, the valuer was from the same company as the previous valuer. So two valuers from the same company. Second one went out and valued it at 55000 how they do that I don't even know why they bothered going out why they didn't just talk to their mate and go yeah 70,000 but there you go that's two two valuers from the same company 170 155 it's tough um to to guess what they're going to do um and sometimes it's an educated guess but it is a bit of a guess (laughs) I mean Ricks if anyone here works for Ricks you lot are a joke yeah yeah because how, how can how can you have no consistency in evaluation, I mean, the real reason, for my understanding, is is because the other lender would potentially. I mean, one, the surveyors, ninety percent of them are idiots, don't know what they're doing. So yeah. maybe this guy was an idiot. But I, I've heard this from very good sources that the lender will basically say to surveyors, like certain lenders will say, "Look, when you go out, we're not looking for the real value. We're looking for a little bit less because we know." you know, what the real value is, and that's fine. But we want less so that our loan to value is less and we're even more secured. And if anything goes wrong, we've got lovely security and our insurers and everyone's happy. And the valuer says, okay, Mr. Lender, I'll do whatever you say. And then it happens. Yeah. So, you know, you could have got four or five lenders out there with the same valuation panel. And I reckon there would have been some like roller coaster of figures that come from them. Yeah. Um, and people, yeah, they really don't, they really don't think about it. And actually, Rosie, in that situation, and there's a few things you can do, I suppose. But what do you do in that situation when you when it gets downvalued and there's no choice? Uh, we, I mean, on this one, um, the the lender that valued it at 55 didn't actually give mortgages on properties that were less than 60. So that was that <sighs> lender out anyway. So I've we had, had to go before. again. Yeah, <laughs> very very painful. Um, and on the third one, I think they valued it at 65. Oh my um, god! And I mean, we took it again it's five grand we'll make it up somewhere else i mean that's interesting because now we have three different numbers yeah for a property that i bet you if we took a semi-experienced property investor gave them the address and said tell us what this is worth they would and we took five of them they'd probably all agree and have a lot more accuracy than these qualified in yeah. brackets back of a cereal box well and, and as i say we own the two flats beneath this and one of them two years ago got valued at 70 and the other one the year before got valued at 75 so and the market had, had gone up a bit since then um so 70 was more than reasonable but there you go that's life <laughs> it is and what you said there actually about you know the lender didn't lend below their minimum number i've had that before and i was like yeah. oh i oh okay like I, I didn't even expect it to go below that value so it wasn't even concerning yeah. And ever since then, I've you know I've kind of said to people, when you're investing, be really careful below, I think some of them, I think most of them above 75K, they're okay. I think last time I checked, anything less, they can be iffy. And there are a few lenders at, at that level. But I say to people, it's probably safer if you aim for a 80K plus end value in terms of yeah. like where you're buying to protect your investment. That's it. Um, Especially if you're, it depends if you're in a limited company or personal name. So quite a few of ours we've bought in personal name just because we can't get a mortgage in limited company. So um, these three flats we bought for 40,000 each 
Um, we at the time you could get mortgages on forty thousand. Very difficult to now. Um, so so yeah, it's it, it, it's all dependent on uh, entity as well. And I suppose this is where having a good broker really really comes into it because what I do before I before I look at any deal in any seriousness, the first person I text, big up Shaz, my broker, and I say, is this mortgageable? Because if I'm selling it, it, it needs to be mortgageable for the yeah. buyer. Or if I'm keeping it, obviously it needs to be. So for people listening, like the broker for me is like step one. Like yeah. even sometimes before I even do the maths, I'll just be like, yo, can we get a mortgage on this? Because I buy some funky stuff. So it's always good to check. Now you were investing in the Whittle and yeah. you're living in Kent and Am I right in saying at this time you both had full-time jobs? Yes, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how long is the drive? Five hours? But, yeah, five hours on a good on a good day. So, um, yeah. How did that work for you? So, um, to start with, we decided every, I think it was every three weeks, we went up and spent the weekend there and we did lots of viewings um put all our offers out um and it was it was once every three weeks of course we've just completed a 12 bedroom hmo that involved a lot of time up there for me so i was i was actually living in the hmo while the refurb was going on for a bit um because i needed to be there a lot more regularly than once every three weeks to keep an eye on the builders so i think it, it was a starting point for us we couldn't have afforded to start this property business um, in the south we didn't have the investment backing we didn't have the funds ourselves ourselves so we we weren't going to let that stop us so we went up north uh, we're now trying to um, invest in the southeast um, instead because that is it, it, it's tough to keep that up for any length of time um, which I'm sure you know about <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I hated it I mean I hated it the second I started it I was just like yeah. Yeah, it's just the drive and it's just it's just that time. And, you know, especially when you're managing builders, like you said, I mean, having to live in your HMO, if it's a good test of your product, um, yeah. but like having to live in it because, you know, we can't trust builders to do their job. Yeah. It's, it's irritating, principally irritating and it's irritating just physically, right? Because I'm sure you'd rather be at home in your comfy bed. Absolutely. Like... But also it's, it's not just the builders, it's it's being able to get there and view the properties. So mm. if you've built relationships with estate agents and they call you and say, we've got something we think you'll, you'll like it. When you've got a full-time job, you can't just drop everything and drive five hours just for one viewing. It, it just doesn't make financial or logical sense. Um, so yes, the builders are, are a huge part of that, but also actually being able to get the deals is, is a lot harder if you're investing from that distance. And, you know, this is what I tell people who are investing from afar, I think, and I'd love to know your thoughts on it, but, you know, your expectation has to be lower than someone who lives in the Wirral, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you can't get there, you know, because if I say, say you were going to go up, right? Best deal ever. You're, you're driving this morning, right? At 9am, you're going to get there at, you know, two o'clock, right? If I live in the Wirral, I'm getting there at 10 past nine. I've offered, it's done, it's off the market. You're you're on the motorway. So people need to think about this. When you're investing from afar, this will happen. I mean, you know, with going every sort of three weeks, obviously deals would go off the market, things wouldn't be available, that there may just be a bit of a dry week and there's nothing much to see. Mm -hmm. Um, did this frustrate you, like missing out potentially? 
Absolutely. And it took us um, nine months to get that first offer accepted from when we started viewing properties, um, which was which was tough. We told everyone that we were going to be property investors and (laughs) we were doing everything we could. I mean, one weekend, I think we did 20 viewings or something ridiculous. Um, And we just we just weren't getting anything, anything accepted. But um, eventually it it came through and it sort of snowballed from there. But um, it yeah hard I work mean, for, for other people who are starting out who maybe don't want to do that or maybe can't you know maybe their weekends are you know they've got other stuff whatever it is um you know is there anything else people can do like sources or just get people to view stuff for you like outsourcing at all yeah absolutely i think i think sourcing agents definitely a good shout um I've, I've seen some people get great deals through sourcing agents. I think, again, your expectations need to be lowered that bit more than even mine were traveling five hours. Um, it's when, I mean, people come to me and ask if we source and they're looking for 50% return on investment. And you just think, I mean, if I can source 50%, <laughs> I'm buying it myself, guys. Yep. Um, so, yes, I think I think there's options with that. It's just, um, again, expectation. Definitely. Look, a source is never going to give you a super, super deal because they're by themselves. Um, yeah. And there's also their fee to take into account at the same time. If you're not having to go up there and everything's kind of managed and you've just bought, got a deal, you know, here in your inbox, I think the fee can sometimes cover itself. I think a lot of deal sources are not very good. Um, yeah. A lot of investors are asking too much. So there's kind of a, you know, a bit of an imbalance here, but it's very easy to be a deal sourcer. So yeah. There's also things you, you know, you, for example, you could get someone up there who wants to learn about property to do viewings for you and yeah. you'd like sort of talk them through every viewing or you help them learn things. And instead of, and you can also pay as well or whatever, but as long as there's an exchange of value, you know, cause someone viewing a property for you is pro- actually maybe getting more out of it in that moment because you're sort of saying to them, Hey, you know, here's what I think about this and here's the cost of this. And so, you know, maybe find some value exchanges, people who want to invest further from home because you know, Rosie, you were saying earlier that you didn't have the sort of investment backing or the cash to do things locally. Yeah. If you were going to do, you know, buy, refurbish, refinance locally, would it even be as good as doing it up north in terms of the yield at all? Uh, no. So it's slightly different um, strategy. Certainly not, wouldn't even look at buy to lets down here, just not. Uh, and even HMOs, to be honest, tough again. Mm. And I think... That's something that people always debate with, which is, you know, I want to do stuff close to home, but if I do a buy to let here, my return on cash employed is like 4%. I might as well just put it in stocks and shares and do nothing. Or I've got to go to the North, do these long drives, do these, you know, all this kind of stuff when maybe I'll just buy locally. But of course the figures speak for themselves. Like you're saying 20, 25% plus for your first deal. That says a lot. Now, uh, you were doing buy-to-lets and, yeah. you know, after your first deal, buying more and buying more. Did you get into a point where there was kind of a bit of momentum where it was like, oh, offer accepted, offer accepted, offer accepted. How did your, because you've been doing it for sort of three years now, I believe. Yeah. How did your sort of um, progression buying buy-to-lets go in that time? So we were quite, I say lucky, you take enough action, you'll get lucky. Um we were quite lucky in that we found a vendor, this block of flats in particular, um, we we agreed to purchase one a year. 
Um, that was to help his capital gains tax bill, um, but also helped us because we weren't ready to buy three in one go and take take responsibility for a whole freehold. Um, so that worked really nicely for us. And it meant that we had a deal a year that we knew we were going to get. So then we just um, padded that out with a couple more. Um, we're hoping to buy more of him in the future as well. He's got a huge portfolio. And um, we met him through an agent. It wasn't a direct vendor approach. Um, but from there, from meeting him, we've been able to build, build a relationship. Um, and hopefully we'll be the first he comes to for his next his next price to let that he needs to sell. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really how it how it snowballed. Um, we've we got a couple more buy to lets alongside those. Um, and then. From there, we, we started doing direct vendor um, letter campaigns. And that's where our, our lovely HMO came from. So, you know, you were sort of, let's call it vanilla buy to let BR investors. Um, yeah. You didn't want to do HMOs for the reasons you said earlier in the podcast. Yeah. But you've done what I would say is a pretty big uh, uh, HMO. Yeah. And is this HMO local or is it in the Northwest? In the Northwest. So we had no intention of doing HMOs at all. Um, I had uh, arranged for a leaflet company to go and fly 300 houses um, with with a, a little handwritten letter um, that I'd done. And either I gave them the wrong streets or they went rogue. <laughs> um, but I got a call from a guy who had this building um, that had fallen into disrepair that was a block of four flats. Um, at the time, we were interested in buy-to-let, so I thought, great, if we can have these this building as four flats or five flats or maybe even six, it was a huge building, um, then that's six buy-to-lets in our portfolio. Amazing. Um, we couldn't make it work as buy as um, flats. The end value wasn't wasn't the numbers didn't stack with where the end value would have been. Um, the only thing we could think of doing with it was was an HMO. So and it was too good to source. So we had to keep it and we had to do an HMO. But it was never the plan. Hmm. And you, you said this was from one direct vendor campaign with only three hundred letters. Sorry, did I say three hundred? Three thousand. <laughs> 3,000, that makes more sense. I mean, even then, that's a, I mean, and look, people listening, you're not necessarily going to get this kind of level and these kind of responses or this kind of deal, but that's pretty good, you know, sending 3,000 letters out and getting a deal. Um, yeah. And I mean, on that campaign, did you get any other leads? We did. So um, it was actually, uh, my phone was going mad. Um, I had a lot of, a lot of phone calls, uh, with people who wanted to sell their houses um unfortunately again it's this five hours away I can't just drop everything I work full-time even picking up the phone around um around a full-time job was was hard so I was I was getting home going through all my voicemails trying to call people a lot of them were a load of rubbish um telling me about a house down the road that they've seen that's on the market not quite what I I was after um, but thank you anyway Mrs Smith and <laughs> um, so a lot of rubbish but obviously some gems as well mm. and that's how it happens you know like that that is direct vendor campaigns you put 3,000 out you might get 20 calls and then 10 meetings and then you know you might get nothing but yeah 
you know, it, it does take a bit of cost. It does take a bit of time, a bit of effort, a bit of consistency. But and a, and a bit of trialing um, your system. I mean, we were very lucky. This was our first letter. We had done some um, with, for some flyers before while we were out and about flying through um, houses that look run down. But this was this was a handwritten letter, slightly different, a bit more personal, um, obviously photocopied, which, again, I had some phone calls telling me that I must be a scam artist because I'd photocopied a, <laughs> a handwritten letter. Um, but, oh, God. But but yes, it, it that personal again, it's people business um, did a lot better for us than than a, a we buy houses flyer. Um, so it's just just seeing what works in your area as well, I guess. Definitely, and let's let's talk about this uh, this twelve bed mm-hmm. HMO. So first, I suppose, talk me through the figures like purchase price, refurb, end value, rent, that kind of juicy stuff. Okay, so we agreed a purchase price of one hundred seventy two. 500 um that was we exchanged subject to planning on that um so yeah purchase of 172 um renovation including all the furniture light fittings etc um 210,000 um fees were considerable on this one at 47,000 that was um a lot of planning um and various other bits there and then the end value on that one is 550 so you bought it for 17 something and you spent 210 on the refurb yes i mean bloody hell you could build in your house for that what was was it that bad um it's it's a 340 square meter building that was um split into four flats but the the reason he wanted to sell was because the council had just evicted all the tenants um because it wasn't it wasn't you wasn't livable you had to walk through the ground floor flat to get to any of the other flats it, no fire <laughs> safety it, it was wow. it was just it was a bit of a mess um so so yeah 210 I mean that that includes all the nice nice extra bits as well the cushions and the ev- everything um but yeah I think it was about 160 on the construction-y the main construction stuff and then oh, I can't remember <laughs> 210 total and how did you learn? Because, you know, buy to lets are complex within themselves, but I suppose straightforward in the grand scheme of things. HMOs with en suites and soil stacks running through shit and, you know, putting in some RSJs and maybe building, like, you know, and the acoustic proofing and there's so much. Yeah. And you've got 12 bedrooms and it's your first one. Yeah. How did you know what and how to do it? So I have a very confident husband. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, I didn't actually want to do this deal. Uh, we were in the middle of moving house and I thought it was too much, uh, too big a step, um, which it probably was. Um, but Alan was adamant we're doing it. Um, I'm the one that works full time on property now. So um, he just says, yeah, we're doing it. And then I, I figure it out. So uh, lucky him. Um, so I actually was was conscious that this was this was a big step so I um, hired a a bit of a coach for renovate renovations we could have paid a project manager I wanted to learn to do it myself and so I had every couple of weeks I had a call with with this coach and to talk me through uh, the the stages and what I need to be looking for and my I mean my schedule of works was a masterpiece (laughs) it was my builder looked at me like I'd gone mad because he'd done previous jobs for us and we hadn't given him anything near as much as um for this project I think it was 
something like 20 pages of <laughs> exactly what we wanted and he he um he was not not best pleased with me really but um but yeah it, it that detail going into detail of every little thing that we wanted um gave me the confidence to to do this this project because as you say it no mean feet 12 bed and 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 the first time we dealt with building control as well um our little buy to lets haven't had to deal with that at all so um whole whole new ball game um with building rates mm. and I suppose it's kind of like what you said a bit earlier as well about like the best way to learn is to buy a house and I suppose the best way to learn here was you kind of getting stuck in and doing it and you know managing this refurb was it a lot more effort than managing the kind of buy to lets that you did before yeah absolutely and I could have been there a lot more than I was um I would go up most to start with it was once every couple of weeks but really it should have been every week um in the last couple of months I was living up there three four days a week um just I mean really I, I, w- I would have loved to have been there every day um to check check on what was going on and we did stay roughly within budget and roughly on schedule and um, I mean property you never are bang on budget or bang on schedule but um yeah just just little things I mean I was there when the the build the, the, one of the joiners was putting a, a lock on the door and I said what are you doing we don't want that lock we it needs to be a Yale lock that's the front door catching things like that if you're not there you don't get much choice and again it's your expectation you you have to lower your expectations if you can't be there a lot because sometimes they're going to do stuff that isn't perfect and if you want them to put it right it's going to cost you so it's it's just being and I would have loved to choose all the bathroom suites and and the taps and the everything else but again I can't do that um from such a distance so you have to give some level of control over to the builders yeah and that's a very scary statement is um it's giving any control to the builders but you know it's one of these things and like you said that example with the lock I mean it's so hard to kind of trust and trust it's being done correctly because also you know what if you're not there when they're doing damp proofing or when they're plastering and you don't know what's behind it and if they've if they've scrim taped the joints or if they've stuck it correctly you know there's a million and one things that go wrong and you know, construction, there's just a million and one things to know anyway. And if you're not there, there's a, there is a level of trust. But people have to realise that there is a sacrifice, i.e. you being there for that many days a week for the last few months yeah. to get this over the line. Um, it kind of, I'm not saying everyone has to do that or, you know, it's different for everyone, but there is a level of sacrifice that you have to make for this. So, you know, when you were done, you turned a 170k purchase into a was it 550k? Yeah, that's it. Half a million pound asset, which you've kept and is tenanted. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we're still trying to figure out um our cash flow on it, to be honest, because having not done an H HMO before, bills on a 12 bedroom property. Um, but we're, I think it's going to be about two and a half grand cash flow a month. Okay, and how much money did you leave in? Oh. 17,000 so roughly the same as um my first property but on a whopping great one 17 I mean that you know that's not a lot of money left in given how much no. it's worth and your cash flow I mean you'll make that back yeah it's 171 percent return on investment which is um I'll take that <laughs> I'll take that as well no wonder you didn't let the deal go I mean that's and I suppose you know would you say to people out there even if they're following a strategy if they get 
and maybe this is more personal for each person, but you know, would in, in your opinion, would you say that if they find a deal that isn't necessarily their strategy, but it's like, whoa, this could be an epic deal that they consider doing it and learning about it? I mean, from our experience, absolutely. And I we try now not to be too blinkered. And of course, you don't want to be going all over the place looking at all these shiny pennies. But if you can be a bit more open with your strategy and not, because at the moment, especially, there's not loads of deals on the market. Um, we're all fighting for them, aren't we? So I think if you can, that's so our next deal that we're looking at um, that we, we're hopefully about to complete on at some point in the next who knows when um, is a mixed use commercial building um, with two two shops and two flats above. And the only reason we're buying that is because we're really, really struggling to find deals. Um, so we've adjusted our strategy. We've looked at stuff that people aren't necessarily looking at um, on commercial right move. It's still on the market, but it's been on the market a while and nobody's looking at it because commercial at the minute is, oh, I'm not sure about that um, because of the C word. <laughs> and, you know, now you're looking closer to home. Is this, you know, is this a sort of decision based off being sort of tired of the traveling and all the issues of investing from afar? Or is there another reason? Um, I think we, the idea, the plan was always to come a bit closer to home. Um if we couldn't find anything, then we wouldn't. We would carry on up north. But we have we found this next deal, and I'm fairly our, our other focus is is freehold blocks of flats because we really really enjoyed doing the the split purchase um, with the the block we own. Um, so yeah, I think if if there's opportunity, we will invest here. If if we can't find anything else, then we'll go back up north. Where even if you just buy a done up property, the the yield's pretty good. The return on investment. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense, and I think the spreadsheet, you know, the numbers have to make sense, right? Yeah. No point, you know, especially because you've done it now. Like you've done it in the northwest, so you you have systems, you have things in place where you know the next one could be easier than previous ones, um, but it's so much nicer to invest at home. And also, as you've been using investor finance, you know, investor investors will always be like, yeah, so I gave you fifty k first time, but I've actually got like two hundred. So, yeah. and you're like, okay, so we can look closer to home. And on that topic of investor finance, um, you know, so obviously your first deal there was funded. All the deals you've purchased since, how have they generally tended to be funded? Uh, you either, if we can get a mortgage at the front end, we we tend to get a mortgage at the front end. Um, otherwise, investor funds. Um, the one we've just done, uh, the 12 Fed, we we had intended to get development finance. Um, so 75% of the purchase plus I think 100% of the, the refurb. Um, incredibly expensive funding because of all the fees, but we, we couldn't see how we were going to fund it. Um, we, As I said before, we exchanged subject planning. Uh, we actually had the offer accepted on this in May 2019. We didn't buy it till December 2020. Um, and by that point, we'd raised every penny that we needed for it in finance so we, we pulled the much to my <laughs> broker's horror we pulled the finance application um because it was going to save us about nine thousand pounds doing it ourselves um with investor funds wow and obviously you're, you're very active on social media um people go follow on instagram i'll put the link in the uh in the show notes below 
But how are you raising this finance? Does it come from one place or yeah? How do, how do investors find you and then, yeah, lend you the money, I suppose? So one of my top tips for anyone starting out is tell everyone what you do. Um, and that's what we did from the beginning. And that also forced us to do it. Um, those nine months, we could have easily given up, but we told everyone what we were doing. So we had to follow through with it. Um, so that's what we did from the beginning. We, we've had friends invest in us. Fam, most of most of my family have invested in us. Um, but also social media, talking about what you're doing, um, explaining your journey. You're, you're not having to ask for money. It's amazing once you once you show people and you're consistent. And that's the key, being consistent on social media. Um, I think it was in 2018. I posted every day. Um, I think I missed about 10 days in the year, but I posted every day. And that's really where my following grew, my engagement grew. And that's where we've had some investors come from as well, Facebook um, and Instagram. Um, at the moment, I've not got enough deals. The funding is easy. It's the deals. <laughs> yeah, I find that as well, especially in this market. It's just it's yeah. crazy. And you mentioned like family investors now. People don't realize the amount of money that is sitting in their immediate circle. And yeah. family can be the best investors because there's no like sort of long discussions or these these issues because they're family. And you kind of I know it's nice to pay them an interest rate if, if you are. And then like it it's just easier to work with than a random person, you know. Oh, I want to loan you 10 grand at 20% and I want a first charge. You're like, yeah. <laughs> um, can you just get out of my DMs and just stop? <laughs> talking to me because you haven't you clearly don't understand this um so moving forwards then what are your goals i mean well, i suppose firstly we should celebrate a goal maybe that you hit which was you became full-time in yeah. january 2021 exactly what enabled you to do that or what things did you have in place whether it's cash flow cash in the bank you know what was your situation that allowed you to quit it because everyone wants to know when should i quit my job yeah so we replaced my salary it wasn't a big salary as I say I was working for a little little charity um so it wasn't we didn't have to get five thousand pounds a month or anything like that um so we managed to replace my salary with the vitalettes um and we knew the HMO we just completed on the HMO in December 2020 so I knew that I couldn't work full-time and manage that refurb it was just not possible. So at that point, we decided, yeah, I need to leave my job. Um, Alan still works full time and will continue to work full time. Um, his his passion isn't property. He loves what he does. Um, it's a means to an end for him. Um, for, for me, I absolutely, I'm obsessed with property, <laughs> obsessed with it. Mm. And yeah, I mean, that, that does make a lot of sense. Um, and I, I suppose having the safety net is also important, whatever that means to, yeah. to, to people, um, whatever level that is. So yeah, definitely sound advice. And, you know, from being full-time, how have you found it? Have you got more time? Have you got less time? Is it kind of more freeing? Is it harder? Is it easier? So since finishing, so the, for the first six months, um, it was all HMO, 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 um, pretty full on. So since finishing that, I've had a bit more time. Um, we have found a new home, um, which was never really the intention, um, but we found a really good doer upper, um, which we 
are living in a Durapa currently about to move out to another Durapa. So uh, that time has enabled me to find the mixed juice um, purchase that we're doing at the minute and the um, the the new home. Whereas I didn't have time to view when the HMO was going on because if I wasn't um, on site. I was checking with builders, um, speaking to the letting agent about getting it marketed, all that stuff that goes with um, getting an HMO up and running. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And, you know, moving forward then, I suppose, to kind of the next goals, obviously where, you know, by the time people hear this, it will be kind of end of 2021. Have you sort of thought about what you want to do in 2022 or what the kind of next few years or however you set your goals and targets looks like? Yeah. So this year, our goal that we did put out to Instagram um, to try and keep us accountable was to triple our uh, monthly income. We With this commercial, this mixed use, we will achieve that. But whether or not we'll complete on it this year, I don't know. Um, the, the big goal, which I think is a funny one, um, a lot of people have a similar sort of yardstick for where they want to get to in terms of cash flow per month we're sort of thinking about the 10k mark would be fantastic if we can get to that next year we'd be over the moon um and really our focus is going to be um blocks of flats which we have been trying to get a freehold block of flats most of this year hopefully next year we'll, we'll manage it we're doing a lot of direct vendor stuff on that um which we've had some interest from but um nothing that we've actually secured yet hmm. and why do you want a freehold block of flats so the strategy being adding value by refurb and adding value by title splitting um having a block so the block we've got up north in terms of maintenance it's a lot easier um having three under one roof you've only got one roof (laughs) first and foremost um and any you're you're getting more cash flow for for one building um it just and that ability to add value through title splitting is another is another level to to the property yeah and i you know i agree i knew it would be that like freehold blocks of flats are like buy to lets on steroid steroids plus the kind of legal title splitting and yeah the kind of financing you can do freeholds etc with them so yeah i really like that and uh if you could have dinner with three people dead or alive uh who would it be and what would you eat oh gosh oh that is a curveball I would I would eat a roast dinner because roasts are my absolute favorite. Love it. Oh, three people, that's really hard. Could be famous, could be uh, uh, could be Beyonce, you know, could be anyone. <laughs> anyone you think okay. you'd want to uh, speak to, I suppose, and listen to. Yeah, okay. Um I love Ryan Gosling. If I could marry him, I would. Don't tell Alan. <laughs> so so I'd go on a date with him. Um, I hmm, that's really hard, Tej. Um, I mean, look, you could just do Gosling three times. You know, if, Gos- if, Gosling three times. Just don't tell him. Yeah, if there's that much love, you, you know, that's fine. That's, I'll accept that as an answer. <laughs> um, and then, you know, social media. We touched on it earlier. We also said how you know it can raise money for people. I've raised a lot of money from there. You know, yeah. For you, 
because it, obviously it takes time, you know, it can feel like its own full-time job, which I suppose it is. What are the benefits for you of using social media and is it worth the time that you put into it? Uh, definitely worth the time that I put into it. Um, when we first started out, I was spending quite a lot of time on it and I was wondering, is this is this actually doing anything for my business? Um, I couldn't quite figure out what the benefits were. Um, but I was consistent and then the benefits started to come. I'm sitting here with you, Tej, now because of my social media, um, various other podcasts. I've been approached by whether or not it will ever happen, um, a TV production company about following us um, on what we're doing. All those opportunities, um, which we would never have had if we didn't have so- our social media. Um, and not just that, it's it's documenting our journey being able to look back on this in hopefully if they don't delete my Instagram account in 20 years time um, and seeing what we did and how we got to where where we are um, and the hard work it took not taking it for granted. Um, we've not just landed on our feet here. We've put the hard graft in um, to get to where we are. So and I think it's helping people as well. Um, if If I can inspire someone to do this it makes me so happy to do it. So um, if I can make someone else happy by giving them the inspiration to do property, then that's that's amazing. I love that. And, and that's definitely really powerful. And the TV show sounds epic. Uh, hopefully <laughs> it, it goes ahead and I, I turn on my TV and you're there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I suppose one of the things that you've sort of touched on throughout that is like, you're part of a community, right? And to be part of a community, you have to give and you have to take. You have to contribute to it and then you have to take value from it. And I suppose, you know, you're one of the people in like property who is contributing, you know, you're posting content out there, helping people, like you said, but at the same time, you know, it's a benefit for you to be part of a community where if you post and say, oh, bloody hell, Slister's doing this or that's happening, it's doing my head in, we're all going to be like, oh, I know exactly what you mean, right? Just like I'll talk about surveyors and and other things. So people don't realize that property can get lonely, um, even if you have a business partner or, or, or in JVs, whatever you want to call them, it can still get lonely. And sometimes it's nice to just have people that you can speak to and they're like, oh, I totally get it. I've had the exact same thing. Try this or, or do something else with it. Yeah. Now, my last sort of question is about your business partner, Alan. Now, your partners and your business partners, How how is that? You know, is it, was it easy from the start? Did you have clearly defined roles? was sort of business bleeding over into life how was it and how is it yeah I think I think business will always bleed over into life it's very hard to to have that structure um to to switch off fully but I think now I work on the business full-time it's a lot easier than it was um when we were both working full-time I I couldn't do everything I'm a complete control freak if you haven't already realized Ted um so Alan having to do quite a bit of the the legwork um before I gave up my job um I I like to oversee everything and that's not good (laughs) good for a relationship um but now I'm I'm doing most of the I mean he hates all the admin side of things anyway so it's quite nice for me to be able to do all of that take ownership of it he's he's focusing his he focuses more on the strategy and he's very good at pushing me to um 
do things I'm not particularly comfortable with um because there's a lot of things that I've not been comfortable with that he's pushed me to do <laughs> yeah I love that I think that that's also an, uh, an important part right is that your business partners obviously should bring something different and you know you know where possible if you're choosing your business partner um yeah. it should kind of complement your strengths but also yeah push you out your comfort zone you know kind of say look it's okay I understand this you take the jump and I'm here to support you know yeah. and that's what partners in general do whether it's business partners or anything else yeah so Rosie thank you so much for coming on the Ted Talks podcast if people want to get a hold of you if they want to see what you're up to um, they want to check out the cute puppy you know they want to see the 12 bed HMO uh, where should they go so uh, we're most active on Instagram and there's also our our Facebook we are um, Arch Investments um on facebook instagram and linkedin um or you can find our website um at www.archinvestments.co.uk i love it rosie thanks so much thanks Tej. if you like this podcast connect with Tej on facebook linkedin and youtube for more great content